Well, let's turn once again in our Bibles to Matthew 24, and this is a teaching from Christ on the end times. And these chapters, 24 and 25, were taught by Jesus to his disciples on the Mount of Olives. It's the Olivet Discourse. It's at the end of his uh, Passion Week, nearing the time where he's going to be captured to go to the cross. And this is the final teachings that he's giving a look uh, 2,000 years ago where he's teaching them, where he's projecting at least beyond 2,000 years because here we are 2,000 years later and that projection still is to come. These are coming attractions. These are end times visions from, um, from Jesus about how the, the believers during the tribulation should flee from evil. That's what we talked about last time, and it was a big sermon last time that turned out to be a big sermon introduction on end times. And if you were watching the outline go up, you saw kind of a, a, a header, a proposition in point one. Well, th- to explain that is to say that I basically gave an introduction for most of the sermon and only got to point one because my initial idea was I'd be able to preach three points out of Matthew 24, and each point turned into its own sermon. So one sermon ended up in the study turning into a sermon series. So this is uh, winning the world at its worst and is a part two um, to that. And this is our, this is our text uh, this morning. I, I think this, this is actually probably a part three if I'm, if I'm following it right. But listen as I read verses 23 to 28. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand, so if they say to you, look, He's in the wilderness, do not go out. They say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Again, just touching our toe into um, end times theology here is to kind of hit a nerve uh, center for where the church has been thinking lately. Churches are talking about the end times these days. And I don't think by mistake, it's uh, the wobble of our culture and the vulnerability that Christians now feel, I think, has begged people to say, what is the end supposed to look like? And how are we supposed to conduct ourselves in terms of the end? Because it looks and feels more and more like these things than ever before. I don't think that's a bad thing to, to consider End time studies are really a study in our current holiness. We might be talking about the future, but the future should impact us today. What sort of people ought we to be in light of Jesus' soon and coming return? Who will he find when he returns? Jesus here is uh, talking in terms of immediately after he comes back and raptures, raptures the church, he's talking about the seven-year tribulation period where 144,000 Jews are going to be one to Christ, and then they in turn will be the evangelists to the world. 
144,000. It's the 12 times 12. You've got uh, 12 tribes of Israel. You have 12,000 in each tribe, and that's making up the 144,000. And so this is the continuity of Israel's or God's plan with Israel all along where the chosen race, the chosen ethnicity, the chosen people of God, the promises that are applied to them where they might have faltered and rejected Christ, but those promises are going to be fulfilled ultimately in the end. And we talked about that from Romans chapter 11, which is very specific, that the church is grafted into the original plan that was for Israel, not the other way around. And so this is right in line with that continuity of the end. And what we're going to see from these 144,000 is that they are instructed to do certain things during that time as acts of perseverance. You say, what is persevering? Persevering is the no quit of the believer's life. No matter how hard it gets, I will overcome. I will keep on keeping on for Christ. And perseverance, their perseverance is a model for us for how we should live today. Don't ever quit in the Christian life. And it's my burden to build that bridge from the example and model of the 144,000 for how they model we should live today. How believers, and this is the header, how believers persevere when the world is at its worst. Number one, and we learned last time, we run from evil. Believers run from evil. That was verses 15 to 22. Verse 15 is talking about the abomination of desolation. This is where the Antichrist at the end times during the seven-year tribulation period, um, the church is gone. The 144,000 are there. Antichrist shows up. He's winning the world. He's at the epicenter of central sort of religious uh, worship, and he goes into the temple, and he desecrates it. He desecrates it at... The midway point of the tribulation, three and a half years, and at that point, Jesus' instruction is clear on what to do. What are you supposed to do if you're there and you're seeing that? Verse 16, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. As the old hillbilly said, run to the hills or run for the hills. Run. You run. You leave. You separate. You don't dance with the devil, you don't debate with the devil, you don't fall prey to what Eve was caught doing with the serpent in the Garden of Eden where you're debating what God had said, debating if God is withholding something from you, you can't even touch that tree and she was beguiled and seduced into sin. That's what happens when you hang out with bad company and don't run from it. So I've got a lot to say that's on my heart this morning, but one of the things I want to mention is that point one from last week's sermon raised a clear question in a few people's minds, and that is, what does it look like to really run from evil? Evil is sort of a generic term, so what does that practically mean? Maybe for the 144,000, what does that mean in particular for you and me? And I tried to be clear to say that I'm not talking in terms of separating from something in the name of legalism. Um, sort of man-made traditions, hair length, hairstyle, what you listen to, where you go, where you shouldn't go, what practices, what gray areas you participate in, some will and some won't, etc. I understand those things and those debates and um, things to think through, but this is talking a little bit more plainly than that. This is talking in terms of not just 
what you run from, but who you run from. And I, all my subpoints here will, will sort of fill that out. What does it look like to flee evil in specifics? Number one, fleeing evil is discerning false messiahs. Fleeing, in the, in the sense of the text, is discerning who you're fleeing from, or correct to grammar, whom you are fleeing from. You're, you're running from false messiahs. You're not just um, taking everything that's coming downstream and saying, you know, that, that looks good, and maybe I'll consider this or that. No, you're discerning it. You're on guard, and you're saying, that's not of Christ, and I'm going the other way. Someone's handing you the $100 bill, counterfeit gospel. You're holding it up to the UV light. You're seeing the markings aren't there, and you're saying, no, thank you. This is monopoly money. You're not someone who just crumples it up, sticks it in your pocket, thinks you're richer, and really you're just as empty as you were before. You flee false gospels by fleeing false teachers. False teachers and false teaching is warned of throughout the whole Bible. It's always bad, and it's always false teachers coming with a clear warning to get away from them. Don't listen to them. First John 4, you are to test the spirits. You are discern, to discern what is true and what is false. False ideologies will send you to hell. And you say, well, is it really that serious? Yeah, anyone who comes to you with another gospel, according to Galatians chapter 1, Paul says, let that person be damned. Let that person be anathema. Anyone that comes to you purporting another Jesus, a different Jesus than you uh, were accustomed to, or a different Jesus that's revealed in Scripture, that is to be um, run away from. A different gospel. Why is the, the, the language of the Bible so severe? It's so severe and it's so direct because the stakes are so high in terms of where a false gospel will lead you because it leads you directly to eternal hell. Anyone who's giving you any way to heaven that is different than the gospel, a different gospel, is of the, the Antichrist, is of the devil. Paul's very direct because hell is incomprehensible to the finite mind. We can't imagine how high the stakes are, in other words. We really don't understand how dooming it is, how dark it is, and how scary it is to find yourself in hell. I mean, think about it. How many times have we thought that we were so right about something, and then it turns out we were wrong, dead wrong. We don't want to be eternally wrong I was trying to think about the state of hell and how scary it might be, and it reminded me of this sort of scientific uh, term, hypnagia, which is um, a a, highfalutin word for sleep paralysis. And I mentioned this to some men um, in the church earlier, a group of men, and I was like, have you ever heard of this? And they said, no, I've never had this before. I have. And so I thought, oh, you know, and I looked up the statistical ratio. Apparently it's one in three have experienced some level of sleep paralysis where you're having rapid eye movement. In other words, you're dreaming 
and your sleep is maintained, but you're, you're sort of awake at the same time and paralyzed and you can't do anything about what's happening in the dream. You kind of see the room, you're, you're, you're awake and asleep at the same time. And that's different than the normal transitional period where you slowly wake up. This is kind of a terrifying thing that can give you fear where you can't wake yourself all the way up. You can have hypnagogic hallucinations um, where you hear sight, where you see things, you hear things, you have some feeling of movement and muscle jerks, but you can't wake all the way up. Who's ever experienced? No, just kidding. The, what's the difference between sleep paralysis and hell? Well, in sleep paralysis, hopefully you wake up. In hell, you never come out of that state. You're just always there, trapped. And false doctrine is what gets you there. This is how severe false teaching is. You have kids, you have friends, you have family that go to an errant church. That's a very severe thing. You want to try to pull them or woo them or, or um, evangelize them out of a false church under a false teacher. The sad reality is you have churches that will water things down, even good churches that will make sort of lateral associations with weak churches or errant churches in the name of being a, you know, a family together or non-judgmentalism. And it's to the detriment of other people because they say, well, I guess I'm okay. I guess I'm safe when they really are not. Satan is trying to dupe the most level-headed believer. And they, he comes as 2 Corinthians 11. Listen to these words. Satan comes as an angel of light. He comes to look good, to look attractive, to look helpful. Hey, let's just cancel out the doctrine of sin when we share Christ and just talk all about grace, all about love, all about giving, all about living together in community. But there's no sense of God's holiness or true repentance for sin that allows for God to get glory by saying, listen, you're not trying to save yourself, so I'm going to dump the mother load of grace on you because you're a repentant sinner. That's the gospel. It's where you can't say anything, but I'm helpless, and Jesus, you are Lord of my life. That's the free grace of the gospel, which is the truth. But if you cancel sin out of that equation, or repentance out of that equation, or God's perfect holy standard out of the, that equation, the recipe breaks down and you don't have the gospel. It's a complete self-denial, a complete giving over to the lordship of Christ. Not in part, but in whole. Matthew seven fifteen is where Jesus said, beware of wolves that will come, what? Dressed like sheep, they look like sheep, they look soft and innocent, and really they are not. The super apostles disguise themselves in 2 Corinthians. Paul wrote of this in his autobiography, that's that book of the Bible, and he was talking about the thorn in the flesh, which I think was him saying these you know, hooper or super apostles that are lifting themselves up, raising themselves up above me, they were attacking him and they were demonized leaders. Second Peter talks about how the motivation of a false teacher is greed, sensuality, pride, and power. You just see it in Second Peter chapter 2. And these things are masked by a false gospel. The reason a false teacher promotes 
and pervades and teaches a, small, a false gospel isn't just to draw people to a lesser Jesus and draw people to a lower gospel. It's to cover their own sin. They're covering their own sinfulness and distracting people, doing a bait and switch. I don't want to talk about sin because they're hiding their sin. To talk about sin would expose themselves and they're covering in that regard and drawing people to their own gain. And in so doing, eliminating the need for repentance and the gift of grace in the gospel message. Eliminating the, the true offer of salvation for people and sort of anesthetizing the, the culture where people are just dumbed down and it's like they're just, you know, senselessly going to church, mindlessly going to church without ever thinking of the fear of being headed to hell, the fear of being deceived. We need to be awakened and aware of the truth so that we can have the flood of the assurance of our salvation going, yes, it's all by grace. I mean, that's where we need to get to in our own conscience, where we know we're not saving ourselves. We, we're not duped by what's false. Well, you say, what are some of the false teachings of the day? And I listed a few, and some, one lady came up after first hour and said, oh, there's one more, and I'll see if I remember it. But um, number one, nature. Um, nature is a good thing. But when nature gets mixed into the gospel as something that's saving, it becomes a bad thing. Nature is uh, what God has created. It, it bespeaks the glory of God, Psalm 19 says. It is what reveals God's invisible attributes to us and the glory of seeing sunrises and sunsets here in Alaska and the glory of all the animal kingdom around us and the glory of seeing, you know, sort of micro, microscopic things and macroscopic things in the universe around us. And we, we love nature, but when nature turns into someone's false religion, it can be called naturalism where people begin to worship the creature rather than the creator. They bow down and worship it. And really, it's mirroring back to them like an idol. They're saying, you know, I'm worshiping my own experience in nature. And I'm sort of forest soaking out there to my own religious spirituality and ignoring God, ignoring the creator. And I'm just about me in nature. And people in tribalism have fallen prey to animism and throughout the world animistic culture where people are making the creation God are sending themselves to hell under the guise of superstition. Number two, science. Love science. I love all that science does for us in terms of understanding the world, understanding space technology, understanding electricity, understanding the human body. That's fascinating to me. I think about that a lot, thinking about the brain, thinking about how things work in our world, the law of thermodynamics. The list goes on. Scientific experimentation is, is great, and I applaud people who are scientists and brilliant in that regard. But when science becomes the scientific method of experimental hypothesis that turns into laws that are put on par with the law of God, where science is elevated either on par with or above God's word, it distorts the gospel. You say, well, how does that play out? Well, think in terms of evolution, which some people have jokingly called evolution. It's, you know, the idea that there isn't a creator. Everything happened out of a 
some sort of cosmic explosion or something that happened in an unquantifiable past that now has led over time through the development of, you know, a million zillion variables clashing together that created who we are today. And we're all in this evolutionary process. People are talking today in terms of we're not the highest form of creation, which undercuts what God's word says. That we're made in the image of God, we're the pinnacle. Well, we're not in a a genuinely scientific mind, we're evolving to something else. Or there's already other beings out there, you hear a lot about aliens today, who are the evolved beings who are beyond us in the name of evolution. Or people talking in terms of animal communication that even supersedes what is developed um, between we as humans, you say, well, why, how is that harmful? Can't people live in their own fantasy world if that's not true? Well, the harm in that is it undercuts what the Bible tells us is true about life. Bible reality is Christian worldview that begins in Genesis and the description of six literal day creationism and how the world was made perfect, and how Satan came in and injected himself as the serpent of old and injected the temptation and the sin that happened through Adam and Eve sort of permeates our world and humankind. And sin brought forth death, and then you have death cycling through, and that's the reality of life and death based on sin. And that gives need to a Savior who can come and rescue us out of that death-doomed cycle that will send us to hell, where we are rescued and the gospel is gloriously seen through that rescue. So if you have evolution, you don't have, you don't have sin being the cause of death, And if you have what's called, and this is the cloaking mechanism in the church, they call it theistic evolution, where they say, well, God is the one who kicked everything off in primordial soup, and that's where we are today. So that gives evidence to why our earth is old and why things are the way that they are. I mean, the the wear and tear in the world wasn't through cataclysmic flood, which the Bible says it was. It was through aging over millions and millions of years. I mean, it's just people will rationalize the gospel away one way or the other. If you have this evolution, then you don't have clear the cause of death, which is sin. And then you don't see the clear need for a savior who's saving us from our sins, who died for the whole world. So mixing macro evolution and theistic evolution into the Bible is a very, very dangerous recipe for heresy. Thirdly, pragmatics. Um, Pragmatism uh, is something that in a worldly sense I'd like. Um, you know, socioeconomics is built on that, the need to, to build, to invent, to invent, to advance in culture and society is great. But when that kind of pragmatic philosophy is placed on the church and suddenly people evaluate it in terms of crowd size dynamics only or in terms of giving or in terms of programs, are they slick? Are they marketable? These strategies turn a church into a social club where the who's who go to the best version of the, the, the greatest pragmatic church, um, where is the, the greatest show in town. And that's completely 180 out from gathering together for communion, for fellowship, for love of the Lord, for hearts that are knit together in, in love and grace and a common testimony and the gospel and doctrine. That's, that's why we gather not for a slick program or a success story. 
Social gatherings soon turn into do-gooding societies, and do-gooding societies will fall prey to a fourth heresy, which is called social justice today. Nothing wrong with the word social and nothing wrong with the word justice, but it has become a nouveau religion in the church where um, do-gooding, which is great to help the hurting people, help people on the streets, help people in need, to be a witness in that way is wonderful. We want to do that, but we don't want to do it as a form of good works that earn us um, the gospel, um, earn us grace. And that's what people are doing. They're saying, if you're not doing X, Y, and Z, this program, that program, caring about the world in this way or that, then you don't have the gospel. Well, that's a contamination of the truth because we're saved by grace, not by works. And we have to just be very careful to understand that the grace of God comes from seeing our sin and repenting of our sin and receiving grace and new life. Now, a new life and a new heart will want to do good works. Faith without works is dead, so a living faith will do good things. But you can't reverse that and say the do-gooding is what gets you the grace, and that's the gospel, and that's what social justice is doing. Sadly, it's turning repentance into penance these days with intersectionality and stuff where people are trying to earn their... um, their place with other people that they are alleged to have hurt. And they're in this never able to catch up mode where they're doing penance, where there can never be reparations. It's an unpayable reparations situation, which is really sad in the church. The last one, this is one that this lady brought up last hour. She said, um, what about easy believism? And it's, it's the idea that there's no repentance in the gospel. There's no sense of bowing to the lordship of Christ accepting Jesus as Lord to come into the church or come into God's family. And easy believism is this idea that you just pray a prayer. You just kind of, you're basically showing up and doing a religious rite by saying, I'll pray a prayer, I'll accept Jesus in my life, and then there doesn't have to be any change whatsoever. There won't be any change. There's no evidence of change, but because they prayed that prayer or mouthed those words, they're in, which is a sad thing as well. People are doing all of this. You know why false teachers want these ideologies, scientific, you know, ideology in the church. They want to have pragmatics or social justice movements. Um, They want animism or naturalism in the church. They want these things because they're masks where Romans 1 says they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. All these things are ways that people can hide Um, from being real and exposed and vulnerable before God. People will do anything they can do to distract themselves away from being accountable. And people want to go to churches where they don't feel accountable. They don't want to feel the weight of the word of God on their heart. Because there's only one thing you can do with that. You either sort of are crushed underneath it, or you say, God, forgive me for this or that. That's... That's what's going on. People want to go to places that make them feel better or argue for things that distract people from thinking about their own, the state of their own soul. Listen to what C.S. Lewis wrote in his classic work called Screwtape Letters. This is, these, this is a parody. Who's ever heard of the Screwtape Letters? It's where you have a parody of a, you know, Uncle, Uncle Screwtape, who is an uncle demon who is mentoring his nephew demon, and he's you know, talking about Christians in terms of the patience that we're trying to work on and operate on and distract. 
And uh, listen to what he says here in one of his letters. Um, Screwtape is writing Wormwood. He says, dear, my dear Wormwood, be sure the patient, that's the Christian, remains completely fixated on politics. All right, I've moved from, argu- um, from preaching to meddling here. Argu- arguments, political gossip, and obsessing on the faults of people they have never met serves as an excellent distraction from advancing in personal virtue, character, and the things the patient can control. Make sure to keep the patient in a constant state of angst, frustration, and general disdain towards the rest of the human race in order to avoid any charity or inner peace from further developing. Ensure the patient continues to believe that the problem is out there in the broken system rather than recognizing there is a problem with himself. Keep up the good work. Signed, Uncle Screwtape. What do a false Christ look like? Well, anyone at all, any one of us who presents a different Jesus than what the Bible says or a different supposed way to heaven. These are opportunistic saviors. And verse 23 points it out. Look at verse 23. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, what are you supposed to do? Do not believe it. Do not put your faith, that word belief, pistis is faith. Do not place your faith in that person. Don't do it. Run away. Second point in terms of what running from evil looks like is you don't just run from antichrist with false gospels. You run from false miracles. You run from experientialism. This is another heresy in the church. Supernaturalism that's not based on God doing supernatural things. It's based on man either contriving experientialism, like making it happen with smoke and mirrors, or actual demonic supernaturalism that shows up in the church to validate a false gospel. The false teacher, if, if sort of their persona isn't enough to grab people, and if their teaching isn't accommodating enough to grab people, then what's promised is Satan will be energized to do and perform supernatural things that can also distract people where they will validate that leader and start to worship a man rather than Christ. Happens all the time. Inexplicable experiences are on people's radar. People are looking for those things. All the alien talk in our world, all the talk of, well, I wonder if that's of God or not. All of that is people being curious about experientialism. Look at this, verse 24. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. They're so extreme. Jesus is saying this is so powerful and so dynamic, so convincing that if someone that I've chosen could be led astray, they would be led astray. (laughs) If it could happen, if it was possible for one of my chosen to be loosed from the grip of my hand, they would go and wander away like a straying planet. It's the word planao for a stray. They would be like a straying planet going for the experience. People love experiences. They like to be wooed and wowed and for things to be solved by an experience. And Satan is the ultimate version of counterfeit. 
He tried to be his own experience, raising himself up before God as the highest angel in God's angelic order. Revelation 12, 4 talks about how when he was raised up, God put him down. And he is the dragon um, who was in Revelation chapter 12 trying to um, devour the Christ, was put out of heaven and he swept the dragon did a third of his of God's holy angels into judgment as they followed him, meaning thousands upon thousands upon thousands, an uncountable number of angels followed Satan. These angels show up in the book of Job. They're around him, and Satan is given all kinds of authority and allowance to attack Job with weather, to attack Job through armies, to, to ultimately have Job's children killed by a house that falls in on itself, by wind and weather dynamics that Satan was controlling. Satan was allowed ultimately to strike Job with sores and wreck his life and nearly destroy his faith. Ultimately, because Job was part of the elect, he would not falter, but Job had incredible, I mean, Satan had incredible sway over Job. Satan, who had raised himself up, saying that he was God. He said, I will arise, I will ascend, I will do these things. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28 was ultimately the picture of counterfeit supernaturalism. The great Nephil, the giant Nephilim of um, the pre-flood world, the giants that walk the earth. Genesis 6, 1 to 4, talk about these hybrid demon-born um, beings Whatever they were, demonized people cohabitating with other people and these giants were there and they ultimately represented how bad off the world was. These supernatural beings were struck down by the flood. Post-flood, you have Janus and Jambres, the magicians of Exodus 7, verses 11 and 22, who opposed Moses, who did false miracles, but they were supernatural acts to try to debunk Moses as God's chosen man, the savior figure of the Old Testament and the gospel, releasing the children from their bondage, God's children from bondage. These were satanic miracles that were contesting Moses. False prophets are throughout the Old Testament. You remember Numbers 20, 22, 23, where you have Balaam, Balak, and the talking donkey. And you have Balaam, who is compared in the New Testament as one who's compared to a false teacher, 2 Peter 2, 14 and 16. It talks about false teachers. Listen to their motives here. Eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they've gone astray, and they've followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who, who loved gain from wrongdoing. He was rebuked for his own transgression. This is referencing Balaam in that scene back in the book of Numbers. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. This is the dynamics that are happened even in the church through false teachers. Saul, King Saul, the first king of Israel, channeled Samuel through the necromancer who was the witch of Endor. Do you remember that in 1 Samuel 28, 3 through 25? That's why there are laws for forbidding divination, sorcery, necromancy, or the idea of raising people from the dead in, in some sort of spiritual sense. All of this brought the penalty of execution in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 13, 1 to 5. Listen to this passage. And this passage is paralleled uh, by Paul in the New Testament when he talked about church discipline. 
It's an incredible passage. And this passage looks just like Jesus' teaching for the 144,000 in the future. Listen, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, hey, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But the prophet or the dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. It's a lot of parallels here. When you see evil, that's antichrist. When you see anything that, that distracts you from the true Christ of scripture. This again is 1 John chapter 4 where we test the spirits. The early church was already saying that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. And so 1 John 4 is saying, no, you identified Jesus as he was fully human and fully God at the same time not one at the expense of the other. That was a heresy in the early church. You're supposed to test these things. Anything that, that promotes a lesser Jesus, something that's not a biblical Jesus, is counter to the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 13 is where Paul uses this exact same phrase from Deuteronomy 13, where he says, God judges those outside Purge the evil person from among you. What is he talking about? Is he talking about stoning people in the church? No, not at all. First Corinthians 5 is talking about church discipline. It's the story of the so-called brother who was committing incestuous acts that weren't even to be spoken of in the Gentile world. And he ultimately, after being confronted, was to be delivered over in step four discipline where they're put out of the church. And put out of the church for the purpose that God would deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. So verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 5, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Church discipline sounds extremely harsh and it is very, very serious. It's exposing someone to themselves. It's calling the church to go on a rescue mission in prayer and love and evangelism for that person's soul. And for their life and rescue. But when someone is put out of the church, they're to be treated as an unbeliever so that they will be stripped of the benefits of the church and ultimately come to their senses like the prodigal son and be saved before it's too late and they go to hell. The phrase that Paul uses here is purge the evil person from among you. And it's applying Deuteronomy to the church today. Why is this? It's because the stakes are that high. It's where I begin. People don't think in terms of eternal hell as a consequence to being led astray. You see all kinds of supernatural acts in the Bible where things are countering the truth. The demonized man Legion was countering Christ who came as the truth. Judas Iscariot was embedded in the apostles and doing fakery and 
and performing acts and miracles, and yet his heart ultimately would be given over to Satan. You have a counterattack on the early church with the first missionary journey where Bar-Jesus is countering Paul and Silas on the island of Miletus. And Acts 13, 6 through 12, you have Sceva, who's the chief priest, whose sons, the seven sons, were out of their depth, and they tried to, in their own power, take on demons, and they were stripped naked and sent out of the temple. You have the facade of miracles that were taking place in the early church. You had early church miracles, but then you had paganized worship that came early in 1 Corinthians 12. Paul says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed. You were known or you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. When you were given over to party life or bar scene life, or just out of control behavior, you were given over to idolatry. That's what Paul is saying. Sound familiar? That's where people just worship themselves, worship their experiences, worship their own lives. And he says, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. You say, well, where does that happen in worship? Well, someone might not outright say that, but if they are practicing paganism in the church... Even in the worship, in an out-of-control manner, they might be blaspheming the name of the Lord, taking the Lord's name in vain. And no one does that by the Holy Spirit, Jesus, or Paul says. And then Paul says, no one could say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. What he means is no one can authentically say that by faith except by the Holy Spirit. You have to watch out for paganism, even in the modern church. People do contrived experiences. They call for people to lose bodily control and function and say, that's the Holy Spirit. Well, that's blaspheming the Spirit in a worship service. These are modern hypnotic or power of suggestion strategies also in the natural realm that lead people astray, let alone anything that supernaturally comes into the church. All of this is to be avoided at all cost. It says, even the elect could be led astray if God allowed for that, but by God's grace, he doesn't allow for that. So that leads us to kind of our last two points, which I'll take quickly. We've been talking about how people flee false messiahs, antichrist. You have to flee false experiences, and then you flee the last thing or false communities or second to last false communities these are false churches it's avoiding peer pressure so in the last days just as it will be in these days there are people who will say hey come here join this look at verse 25 see i have i've told you beforehand so if they say to you look he's in the wilderness do not go out if they say look he's in the inner rooms do not believe it stop there wilderness think authentic. People go, look, we don't need a building. We don't need programs. We don't need a doctrinal statement. Just come out into the wilderness. Let's worship God out in creation. Nothing wrong with worshiping God out in the wilderness. But when people start to say, I'm enticing you to something that's a false gospel and a false leader, and I'm validating that falsehood with wilderness talk, that's what you avoid. Don't go out there. Don't just believe them because they're saying this is a more authentic Christ. Or, by contrast, the appearance of being credentialed or sanctioned by 
being drawn into an inner room, some sort of high tower, or some sort of special sanctuary, some sort of special setting. That's validating the authenticity of Christ. None of that is true. That's just peer pressure. You have to be careful, even the influence of friends and family that will draw you away from the gospel, even if you don't know they're doing that. You remember Jesus' own mother and brothers, half-brothers and probably half-sisters came to wrest him away off the mission field where they were wanting an audience with him. They thought he was, because he was not eating well and he was just out on the mission, pouring himself out. They wanted to pull him off the mission field. And Jesus said, no, you are my brothers and sisters. I've already alluded to 1 John 4, 1 to 4, testing every spirit, um, being vigilant in this. So fleeing false communities is super important. I had a friend who um, is a pastor who was being invited. He was um, sort of doing some traveling evangelism, and he and um, a particular celebrity, and then he was invited um, with the potential of preaching in Joel Osteen's church to preach part, as part of an evangelistic rally there. And he was talking to several of us, and several people were saying, yeah, you know, you should do it. It's your opportunity to do that. And I just thought, you know, I don't think you should. Because I think that the, the association could be tacit approval and confuse people. And so I just pulled him aside later and I just said, listen, if you go and preach there, if you get invited to do that, you should preach in such a way that they would never invite you back. You need to preach like Paul at Mount Areopagus and say, you know, God has commanded all men everywhere to repent in light of a future judgment. God's going to come and burn this place down. Preach in a way that you should be thrown out. You have to rein in curiosity. You don't want to be seduced. Verse 26, it says, do not believe it. That's what fleeing looks, looks like. You don't believe it. You don't buy into it. The last um, place to flee is fleeing a false promise. This is the false promise that's found in the wilderness. Hey, come out to the wilderness. Join us out here. The true Jesus is here. The experiences validate that it's true. Come out here. Come away from the safety of, of where you are in the gospel. Come to this false gospel. What, what's going to be waiting for you? Look at this at verse 27. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Suddenly lightning will strike. Worldwide event of Christ's return will rain down. And here you are in a wilderness setting associated with false teachers and false teaching. And you're going to go down with them if you're not a true believer. What's really in the wilderness? Well, it says so in verse 28, it says, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Um, a bludgeoning of people who denied the Lord. It's a worldwide event that's in the future. By the way, this event of Christ's return is future, and every event preceding this moment is future including the abomination of desolation, all the way through the end of the tribulation to this point. This is chronologically written as a futurist vision. It's important to understand that. The picture of vultures eating people is grotesque, but it's meant to look grotesque and ward us away. We don't want to be anywhere near false gospels, false leaders, false experiences, false places, false communities, we want distance there. That's what we're running from.